Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Reflections by Spectacles. Today we're going to be talking about an insight that Harry wrote on the Pandora Papers, a new expose of international tax evasion, and what it means for democracy and the rule of law, and why international cooperation is going to be so critical to solving this problem. So first of all, Harry, I think our readers and listeners would be interested to know, you detailed it a little bit in the article about how this works to evade taxes internationally. You talked about shell corporations, but a little more on that and also how we got here. Sure. I think that would probably be interesting for, for our audience. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to do sort of a blitz through a little bit of, of the history here, sort of how the, the economic government of the world in the aftermath of the pretty, second... Pre, yeah, pretty easy thing to blitz through. <laughs> uh, it's going to be very broad strokes, but I think it's <laughs> useful. So in the aftermath of the Second World War, a lot of the nations that won the war sat down, actually in the United States, and sort of developed a a consensus on what the global economic system is supposed to look like Mm -hmm. after the war has ended. And what comes out of that is what we typically call the Bretton Woods system. That's where they met and they had these conferences. And they basically decided that free trade was a good thing that, you know, you wanted to have sort of liberal trade between countries. That's, you know, one way of building prosperity. And also that there would be relatively strict controls on the movement of capital money across national borders. And that was sort of the dominant consensus in liberal democracies around the world during the first part of the Cold War until about halfway through the 70s up to the 80s when you get what I think we all know of as sort of this like deregulatory movement that comes about through, I mean, it actually starts kind of with Jimmy Carter, but also goes through Ronald Reagan, this idea that fewer regulations, both domestically and internationally, is a good way to generate economic growth for all countries. And so... And I think we've pointed it out before, but just, you know, if you're not familiar with this period then it's, I think, worth pointing out that Ronald Reagan was not the only guy saying these things. It was not just America, but these ideas took hold around the world, particularly in, in, in the Britain, UK, right. in the UK with, with Margaret, Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher. Yeah. So that's just important to point out. We talk about that period as like a period of American policy, but it's also a period of a shifting of really international political habits. That's a very and, good point. And, and, yeah. and philosophy. Right, right. You which is say, how it reshapes the international system. Right. Also because right. the U.S. is so weighty in it. But. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that's right. The U.S. is, a, is an important driver of those changes, as is the U.K. still at that point, you know, a, a relatively pretty powerful country. I mean, it still is today, but not as much. But that sort of drives movement in the world economy towards uh, much laxer regulation, especially on mm. capital controls. And so after 1980, It becomes much easier to move capital around the world, as well as easier to uh, move goods. There's a lot of free trade agreements, think NAFTA, and more and more countries being brought into the World Trade Organization. This is even a couple decades later. But the important thing here is that you get this sort of global shift in the regulation of finances. And that has benefits in some sense. I mean, well, I don't know about the finances part. Particularly the trade part has, I think that you can say that there are benefits. There are also key drawbacks that policymakers didn't fully account for or knowingly uh, allowed to occur. Um, Who knows? Who knows? But there were some benefits. And I think part of one side effect of this sort of much, much, much laxer regulation in terms of how capital moves across borders 
gets you to this point where you start developing tax havens, countries where the laws either have loopholes in them that allow you to hoard, you know, your per- move your personal wealth into those countries or your uh, your company's wealth into those countries and and leave it there basically. This is overly simplistic, but basically leave it there without being subject to more taxes right. and then you can take it out when you want it. Right. right. And I, I think and I also just wanted to talk very briefly about, you know, you say there are some benefits to this that maybe is unsurprising to some listeners, surprising to others. So I just wanted to say one example of the benefits of this relaxation of the movement of capital internationally is in Eastern Europe, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the USSR collapses and a lot of a lot of territory is shed. And also right. a lot of satellite states get independence, like right. the country I wrote about just yesterday. If you haven't read my focus on on Estonia, it's I think uh, it's a fun and interesting exploration of a country you probably don't know a lot about. Yeah, Philip says that he was just interested in Estonia, but he's actually trying to move all of his money into <laughs> Estonia so he doesn't have to pay taxes in the U.S. I'm just kidding. Spectacles is going no. to establish Estonia a will slap you with those taxes. Yeah, so. no, but so... In countries like Estonia, like I wrote about yesterday, that had to transition from a command economy of a a communist government to a market economy and also to a decentralized political system, not just a decentralized economic system, you see some of the greatest success stories of high levels of democratization, liberal freedoms, and economic success and growth in countries that saw a considerable amount of foreign investment, which really injected a lot of capital into their economies, Mm -hmm. which allowed them to start up with pretty robust economies and also help to facilitate, as we've talked about, there is a connection between a robust free market economy to some degree and political and social freedoms. These things are connected. And for example, Poland is a great success story in that regard. Estonia is a great success story. And one thing that Harry pointed out was there are some less successful stories like Hungary. Why don't you tell yeah. us? Um, what's well, the I mean, Hungary there? was a, considered a success story for a while. I mean, if you go back and look at any of some of our past stuff we've discussed, I think mostly in podcasts, but I think in one insight have discussed Hungary moving increasingly towards a right populist. Well, politically, they're politically they are a dumpster fire right now. Yes, that's yes. correct. But for a long time, they were considered a success Pol- story. Poland's not doing so hot. Yeah, Poland's either, not doing but... so hot either. Yeah, but they were considered a political economic success story. They got a lot of foreign investment in their in their country that be, and through joining the EU, just through you know embracing the you know global financial system. But what that does in effect is it ties you to the movements of the global financial system. Right. And that can be a good thing when everything is going well. Everyone is tied in some way, but it ties you tighter. Right, exactly. And that can be a good thing when it's go- when things are going well. But if you're very reliant on foreign capital um, to right. build your economy, right. say something like the 2008 financial crash-, crash happens, you're going to be hit very hard. And Hungary was hit very hard. Yeah. They had to take a loan from the International Monetary Fund. We've talked and the about EU. those not working very right. well in the um, past. And the EU, which imposed, again, austerity measures on Hungary and that was very unpopular, which led to the election of Viktor Orban and his right populist political party, Fidesz, and great the deal rest of Euro, Euro and global skepticism. Right. A lot of sort of isolationist, sort of nationalist sentiments arise. Exactly. But I think the thing to point out there, and then we can move on, because right. I've sort of, you know, driven us down a tangent here, but it's worth talking about sort of the drawbacks and the benefits of international investment, things right. like this. 
some of the greatest success you see in is in countries where not only they had a solid amount of foreign investment, which injected capital and energy into their economy, but also had really high levels of small business growth and establishment right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Estonia is one country, the, all the Baltic states, Latvia and Lithuania too. Mm -hmm. Latvia is arguably more economically successful than, I, than either Estonia or Lithuania. But countries like that mm -hmm. not only got foreign investment, but also had really vigorous cultures of small business and, and small enterprise growth, which helps to balance things, right? right? You have some homegrown sort of economic vigor, and also you have just energy injected from abroad. And, so there's yeah, a balance right. to be struck. But also, and directly or indirectly, the infusion of, of foreign capital, right, into corporations, which goes into banks, which can go into loans for small businesses, right. can, can be helpful right. in that respect. Right. I don't want to overstate the case, but I think that you could probably, if you were to really peek under the hood, you would find some connection. Right. But the point is... So it's not all bad. It's not all it's, perfect. Right. Not all bad, not all good, but in particular, not all good in the sense that relaxation of financial, international financial regulation, I think is one major thing that has made it possible to develop these tax havens, the development of these shell corporations where you might not actually know who's on the board of who might who owns shares in it, whose money is right. in it, which I talk about it in the piece. So in some ways, I think that's where right. So those are the policy movements. That's um, the real invisible hand. <laughs> Bad joke. Bad joke. But um, that that's I think a good portion of how you get to something like the Pandora Papers and the previous um, exposés had been released by the um, International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. So I think that's very important to trace that. And then in response to stuff like this, this is the second point that I wanted to make in this discussion, you tend to get sort of this knee jerk. This is what happened in Hungary, for example, right? This is, you get it on the right. Mm -hmm. But it's also, if you recall, on the left, someone like Bernie Sanders, a politician who I actually think has a lot going for him, I consider myself generally a fan of Bernie Sanders, made a lot of statements, especially in the 2016 election, I think less so in the 2020 election, but in yeah, especially the 2016 primary, in, 2016. in the 2016 primary, he was talking about impossible imposing tariffs on the borders and making sure that we and bringing you know you know this these these this money back home and it, in some senses right that that's good but there is kind of a problem in that i think that this direction i call it autarkic in the in the, the, the proper term is autarkic i use the word autarkic in the in the piece meaning right that you're sort of isolating yourself from the world economy from world trade it can be also from immigration although the left is usually not favored trying to that. trying to build a walled garden right Exactly. And I don't think that that is the correct response. Sort of actually one of my... It's it's an appealing promise. You know, you're no longer exposed to shocks in the international system. You're no longer exposed to any sort of banking misbehavior that goes on in places like, again, Estonia in 2017, I think it was, at Swedbank yeah. and Deutsche Bank, right. branches in Tallinn, lots of money laundering, uh, you know, caused some economic problems, you know. So if you can isolate yourself from everyone, you know, you're not affected by anybody else or their behavior. Right. And, and that's the appealing, that's the appeal, that's one of the appealing parts of it. And the other appealing part of it, of course, is people can't hide their money abroad and they pay taxes here. So right. it's sort of two pronged. Right. But. And so it can be appealing in some sense, but I think that ultimately it is mistaken because yeah. it's true that free trade as problematic as it is in certain respects and as much as policymakers have failed to account for the negative effects, right, the decline of manufacturing in, in the Midwest and those sorts of things is beneficial. It, you know, it, it has it has positive effects in 
all countries that are trading. And again, those have not been distributed equally. I would that is, you know, I I, I don't dispute that in any sense. And that's an, it has not been distributed equally between all trading partners, countries, and even within those countries, the the benefits have not been equally distributed or more equally distributed. I I would say that's definitely true. I guess my response to something like that would be, of course, it's not going to be equally distributed because it never will be. The question is whether is it beneficial enough to all parties involved. And I think the cases that we're talking about right now are so disproportionately beneficial to certain people and harmful to others that it's not just a question of it being equal. It's a question of it being actively harmful to some and helpful to others, Right. which is not what the principles of free trade are about. The principles of free trade are about positive sum interactions in which all parties can benefit in some way. Yeah. And that's not what we see with the kind of tax evasion that we're talking about. Right. I mean, that's the thing is like, you know, in the sense you think of free trade and and you know free investment policies the goal of those policies at least as it is stated i mean maybe you can say that certain people knew that they were going to be able to you know, sure. hoard their wealth sure. in the next place yeah. the the ideal goal is not to have this kind of a thing happen right. um and so i think that, that that's very important to remember but my point is that i think isolating yourself from the world going for that walled garden is actually not something that is going to be uh, beneficial. This, right. We have this very interconnected global economy, which has been in many respects beneficial. Again, I can't say it enough. Less beneficial in other respects. I'm not going to say it anymore. But um, <laughs> hasn't been managed appropriately. Yeah, let's say that. Um, and so there's this attractive tendency: go for the walled garden. I, I don't think that that's the right thing to do. And I think one of the important things to highlight here is that the answer. Not to sound like a hashtag enlightened centrist by any means, but the the answer does not lie on, on in either extreme. It lies neither in total economic isolationism and economic nationalism, nor does it lie in laissez-faire free trade in which anybody can do whatever the hell they want. And we're not gonna we're not gonna do anything. Right. That's right. it's it's irresponsibility either way. You tilt that scale. Right. right. It's about finding a balance. Engage with the world. There are benefits to be made, but manage that engagement. Right. Yes. Don't just let it run amok such that you know it becomes a total disaster or a totally unequal and you know, unaccountable situation like we have now. Right. And that leads me to the point that, you know, following from what you're saying. And one more thing that might, that might seem like kind of a banal conclusion to draw, but I think what Harry's pointing to is that there is appeal and this is important. There is appeal on both sides of those extremes, right? And they have their partisans, but the, so it's, it may seem banal, but it is an important thing to point out in the midst of those appealing narratives and rhetoric. Right. Yes, exactly. And so when I come to what I discussed, right, and sort of the solutions, if you can call it the solutions part of my piece, we've discussed in, in in a past insight, but also in this piece, the agreement among a bunch of finance ministers from about 130 countries in the world to establish a global minimum corporate tax, which means that all the countries in the world agree, this is where we're setting the floor. Sorry, 130 countries, including Hong Kong. 130 countries and jurisdictions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, if you think Hong Kong is its own country at this point, I hate to tell you, but they've made this agreement politically to establish this this floor and including some of the countries, Panama and Barbados, that have historically been tax havens, have agreed to sign on to this. But there's a lot more that needs to be done. You need leaders of these countries not just to sign a piece of paper saying, hey, we're going to do this. You need them to go back to their people, to to their congresses, I guess, if they're not democracies. Democracies, not to their congresses. And part um, of the trouble is this is a classic cooperation. 
corporation problem. It's trying to solve one of the great problems is like, we're not going to raise our taxes on corporations because we want that money to come in. And so the point of the agreement is that if we all raise it to a certain minimum, then, you know, I'm not, if I want to be the lowest tax place, right? I'm not going to lose out now right. by raising to this minimum because everyone is raising to this minimum. Right. So there's, they're not going to go somewhere else. Exactly. So it's trying to solve a cooperation problem, but as it turns out, it leaves the cooperation problem in place because somebody's got to sort of draw first. Somebody's got to move first and actually do it. Yeah, it's very difficult. The agreement is non-binding, just like the Paris Climate Agreement, for example. I mean, it's hard to get a, non-bind- a fully binding agreement between 130 countries, as you can imagine. But if it were done, it would be a huge, huge, huge step forward. Yeah. And one thing that I would say that comes out of this is it's important to remember, right now I'm, re- I'm reading Darren Asimoglu and James Robinson's Why Nations Fail, the thesis of the book, it is it's politics that structures our economic institutions and can make them work better or worse. And right now we have them, politics have has structured our economic system such that these people are permitted, are, are able to hoard their wealth offshore and not pay taxes on it. We can structure it so that there is a global minimum tax or there's more transparency mechanisms in place while maintaining liberal a, a global liberal market, which allows for trade and investment which can be beneficial, but you can structure it such that the, that the wealth is shared more equally, right? Maybe not perfect, not perfectly equally, but more equally, but while also having seamless interactions of trade and investment between countries, which I think I would argue is a good thing, but it's important to remember that what's going on here is it's the politics. It is the politics that structures, that is going to structure the global economic system. It's going to structure it such that you can get, you know, rapacious, billionaires and corrupt politicians hoarding their wealth, or you can have it such that you have, you know, good investment, good trade that is beneficial to people at the top and the bottom in each country and in the world, basically, is is my argument. And I think you can have that if you get the politics right here. And if that sounds unintuitive to you, the idea that more government involvement can actually facilitate a freer market, which is sort of what Harry's pointing to, if that's unintuitive to you, then... You should go read yesterday's focus. As I've already talked about, it's about Estonia. And I make a case for Estonia as a great real world example of a of an active, innovative government actually doing a really good job to cultivate a freer market than an uninvolved government. Right. Or you can go listen to our bird's eye episode on libertarianism and conservatism. We'll link we'll link both that yeah, article and um, that to discuss episode birds how eye governments notes. kind of need to structure right. economies such that you can have a working market that allocates yeah. scarce resources well. Anyways. That's all for today. If you enjoyed, please consider subscribing to the podcast, rate us on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new episode of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the show notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to read or make a comment on the article we just discussed, there's also a link in the show notes to our website where you can sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.